This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. Kaliapea envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. Other organizations they support include the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and Led to Life. To learn more about Kaliapea's mission, visit Kaliapea.org. Okay. How's that sound, March? Can you hear me? We could just... Hello. <laughs> okay, good. Cool. So here we go. So, welcome to For the Wild podcast. We are broadcasting live from the Heartwood Cafe in downtown Nevada City. So, we're speaking with Ada Racinos, and I'm going to read her incredible bio for all of us. So, Ada was born and raised in Los Angeles to parents who immigrated from El Salvador. She moved to Richmond after graduating from UCSC with a degree in Global Information and Social Enterprise Studies. Before joining EcoViva as communications and outreach manager, she was the financial sustainability director for Prospera, an organization that partners with entrepreneurial Latinas to build cooperatives. She currently serves as a Richmond City Councilor and was appointed on September 5, 2017, after serving nearly two years as Human Rights and Human Relations Commissioner. She is an alumna of Congressional Hunger Center Emerson Fellowship, Hispanics in Philanthropy, Next Generation Latina Leadership, and NALCAB Collegio Programs. Ada's work has centered on organizing immigrants, renters, and women to advocate for their rights and progressive legislation. Her hobbies include playing extremely difficult Sudoku, trying new foods, and traveling. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that wonderful introduction. I actually just finished up my term as a council member, so okay. January 8th was my last day. Okay. Well, that was very fresh then. Mm-hmm. Well, this is really wonderful to be sitting with you in person. I don't usually have the joy of being able to be so close to the people Mm -hmm. I interview. So this is a whole new experience. And I'm really looking forward to diving into some large topics that are spoken about so much today, like immigration and migration. And I also really want to talk about your film. So I'd really love to start the conversation around the relationship between food sovereignty, agroecology, and climate justice. And perhaps we can begin by giving some context around El Salvador and food production. And if you want to also tie your film into this conversation, I'd really love to hear about that as well. Absolutely. Um, And so we can really start with what has been big corporate agriculture in Central America um, since about the 20s or 30s. The story is and has always been about U.S. imperialism and the oligarchies in El Salvador. We used to be known as the 11 families that would run the country who basically owned all the means of production. And that left a lot of Salvadoran citizens as the production. 
Um, so that meant that a lot of things like bananas, sugarcane, all of those products that were being exported were being all grown in Central South America, in um, several Caribbean countries. And so that really left a devastation in the area long before the Civil War happened in the 80s and the 90s. And so the story of our community members at, in Resilience at the Roots in the Bahia de Jiquilisco is really a story of generational trauma and generational migration. And so these families during the war, that was between Aguerrilla, which was the leftist regime, and the oligarchs, that was funded by U.S. militant and military uh, trainers. A lot of them former Border Patrol agents, a lot of them former CIA agents, who had lethal training that they took to Central America. Really devastated a lot of communities that were already impoverished and had little means to survive during that situation. And so we have a mass migration that starts to happen. Um, and our community members in La Bahia de Jiquilisco decided to go to Panama. Um, and so they left for Panama. When the peace accords were signed after the war um, in the early 90s, they decided to migrate back. One of the issues is that a lot of people lost their property during the Civil War. A lot of people who had you know, small farms, family farms, found that that was no longer their property when they returned. Um, so these community members, some of them from different districts of El Salvador, couldn't go back to where their home was from. And so they were placed in the Bahia de Jiquilisco, and that's where they decided to build their communities. One of the challenges in the area has been the lack of resilience to environmental disasters. And so when we talk about food sovereignty, it really is about the issues that are caused by extreme kind of bouts of drought versus extreme bouts of flooding and a lot of rain. And in a region that's traditionally known as the, the dry corridor um, of the Northern Triangle, it's been more difficult to balance the production of people's food. You know, we're talking large farmers who, who do sell their product and small family farms who grow what they eat are being affected by the impacts of climate change. I think it's so important how you're underscoring how deeply embedded the United States is in this whole process. For example, in 2013, the United States offered El Salvador $277 million in aid through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is a foreign aid agency, under the conditions that El Salvador implements specific economic and environmental policy reforms. Namely, that genetically modified crops and pesticides be forced into the market, citing that locally produced seeds were in violation of the Dominican Republic Central American Free Trade Agreement. I mean, this is disgusting. So, however, these threats didn't hinder El Salvador from banning glyphosate, the key ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup in 2013, and ultimately, El Salvador prioritized using native seeds and local seed programs over products produced by these multinational corporations. So I'm curious if you can speak of the benefits of using native seeds. You know, how are they not only better adapted to local conditions like droughts and floods, as you've been speaking about, but will they perhaps be better suited for climate change in general? Yeah. One of the really resilient things about this community is, as you said, is there was a larger push from the top down to use Monsanto and genetically modified 
seeds for their products. And this community organized themselves together to say no. And I think it goes back to this idea that these folks haven't been living here for that long. They don't have the generational tie to the community, but because of the forced migration, they feel as if they need to live in harmony with the land that they're in now, and that, that that's of utmost importance. And we know that when the seed is natural to the area, that it will adapt. And more than anything, the resources should not be put towards forcing these communities to use a specific type of product to do their uh, farming, but that these farmers themselves have the solutions. They can work with the product, modify it, and that's where the investment should go. In supporting small farmers to do that themselves, to learn how to diversify agriculture, to learn how to trade seeds among themselves in the different regions um, based on some you know issues that are happening in one region that can kind of mirror some of the situations in other regions. And so really it is about claiming back a piece of the land and the tie to the land and about how agriculture is a fundamental piece of their livelihoods and they don't want these products in their space. I mean, they have seen what that type of product has done, the devastation that it's caused in other communities and they wanna say hard stop we think we know what's best, and what's best is that you invest in us to individually start you know, mitigating these issues and adapting to climate change. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the transnational companies like Monsanto and DuPont. In fact, 2016, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, and Syngenta owned 60% of the globe seeds and 64% of global pesticide market. So maybe if we could just talk a little bit more about why these hybrid seeds from Monsanto are so detrimental to the environment, to these communities, and how did Monsanto not only impose upon, but also disempower the local farmer population across El Salvador? Mm -hmm. Of course, you've been speaking about the resilience, yeah. but I want to just hear before they were resilient, what mm -hmm. was happening? You know, what, what were these multinational companies doing in, in these communities? Yeah, you know, recently we talked about this with some of our community members. When something that's not natural to the environment comes in, it has a ripple effect. And so you have then pesticides coming in, you have then a different type of seed that we don't know how it's going to react with the environment. And sometimes it does devastate and cause some of the land that wasn't intended for that type of crop to start to kind of fall apart and disintegrate. And so more than anything, it's about how you cycle in and really the issues with big agriculture, which have always been not living in harmony with the land. It's trying to reap the most that you can, put the most amount of product into the land, sometimes you know, cutting down native plants, cutting down trees, and not restoring it or giving the space or the environment a time to come back. And so that means that these products that are considered more resilient might be successful and they're now pricing out small farmers. And so you have the, the kind of chain link effect where you start getting maybe a couple farmers to use the product. They're doing very well. And now you've created this false idea of competition between that type of product and the type of product that another farmer is growing. That might be a smaller product, it might you know, be natural and so some of the product doesn't look as nice. And so then you've created this competition and this dependency and possibly this level of inflation where that farmer you know, planted this many crops and he was able to harvest 90% of it when naturally you can maybe get 
50-60% of that product. And so now you're devastating markets. So now you're making it very expensive to continue to make this product and then you know that the genetically modified products are still good. And so at that point you're kind of making it a difficult choice when it comes to people's livelihoods about which one they should choose. And so that was the idea behind all of these folks organizing is they saw that story down the line. They said, if one or two of us takes this route, eventually it will be all of us. And it won't be so much because it's a better product, it will be forced. It will be because we have no choice. In order to succeed or thrive, we're gonna have to move in that direction. And so they, they kind of uh, got together and organized around that. Well, I think it's really fascinating to understand that when we talk about food sovereignty and agroecology, we're talking about liberation from historically abusive systems that create dependence to perpetuate subservience. Definitely. And, you know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you, but simultaneously when we talk about the industrial food system that is propelled by these transnational corporations, we're talking about a driving force and also global emissions, which then, of course, is linked to climate change. So if we were to restore these practices of small farmers, organic farmers, you know, farming that could potentially actually regenerate soil nutrients and the pre-industrial levels of and offset significant percentages of global CO2 carbon emissions, um, I'm interested to hear what are these solutions that people are finding in what you're talking about with restoring the land. Restoring the land is also restoring community. It's also restoring the spirit of so many years of abuse, like we were talking at the beginning. I mean, this is intergenerational traumas that are being lived out time and time again. And so I'd really love to hear about how people are finding liberation through farming practices that are, are traditional. And of course, I'm sure there, there's the youth are, are coming up with other methods as we are going into climate change, and we can't solely rely on the past but how, how organic small farming is melding together the traditional ecological knowledge, but also moving towards a future that we know is so much different than even 50 years ago, even 10 years ago at this point. Yeah, more than anything, I think, you know, the region just went through a drought over the summer last year. It was a prolonged drought, and what they knew is kind of an on-off rainy season already. The Northern Triangle is known for this region called the Dry Corridor that does have bouts of drought, but the rain does always come. And it usually comes around July or August, right after kind of a dry patch. Um, the rain didn't come last year. And so what you have is a bunch of community members who had, you know, for, for all means, had tried to already be resilient to the face of the possibility that that would happen. We do have a program around seed banks and diversifying agriculture. The issue is that this continues to happen more and more often. And so then what we need is a deeper investment from the government to look into alternative means for irrigation and agriculture systems that they can start practicing or adapting to. Because they do have you know, different ways that they've, they've done it in the past. These prolonged droughts and then kind of El Nino-like symptoms where there's just flash flooding are making it extremely difficult for them to adapt already because they're already putting in best practices around diversified agriculture. But if these issues keep happening more and more often, 
they're almost left without an option of where would we plant or where would we practice what we know our best practices to to maintain ourselves as farmers. And so I think when it comes to the Ministry of the Environment, I mean, that was one of the first calls from the farmers uh, during the drought when they lost several, I think, millions of hectares of, of product, both what's known as maize, uh, corn, and beans in the region, which are food staples. And when that happens, you have that issue of, you know, communities saying, we need help, and then international organizations saying, we'll give you the beans, we'll give you the corn. That causes an issue, because then you do have a couple of farmers who are able to save their crops, and now they're trying to sell in this inflated market where there's outside product coming in. And so that's the difficult balance. One of the ideas kind of in the larger um, agriculture community is to think about how El Salvador can start to insure farmers. Because at the end of the day, it comes to livelihood and how people can maintain their household economies. And so if we're thinking about how are we preparing for the worst case scenario and trying to fund these farmers so that in case that that does happen, there is some sort of insurance when outside product comes in to make up and avoid people reaching the levels of hunger that cause them to migrate, then there will be somewhere to fall back to. And so we're still looking into that. It's a, it's a concept that's been thrown out um, by a couple of researchers. And we're really interested to see how it um, kind of manifests itself and if that would be applicable to this community. Oh, these issues are so complex and I'm really glad that we're walking through them because when you were talking about the, the foreign aid, I think back to Haiti and how all of the, the, I think it was rice that was flown in, destabilized. It was forced destabilization of the farmers who just were getting their rice crop in. But then you get pushed this, what we think maybe in America, we think, oh, we're doing something good. We're sending rice to these poor people. And then you, and then you look a little deeper. And you're like, oh, no, no, this is actually very um, intentional. This is intentional destabilization to this country. And so I want to start talking about migration and climate change because I know pretty much anybody who watches the news right now, it's on their mind. Trump's talking about the wall. You know, people are talking about the border. But very little people are going back and actually talking about what created this forced migration from these places. And so I just feel like what I want to talk about is really overshadowed by mainstream media because the thing is people don't leave their land if there's an abundance of food and water. They don't, they don't want to leave their land if, they're, if they have stability and they have their traditions. So people just don't wake up one morning and decide to abandon what is providing for them. They don't want to just one day leave their families and their land that they have deep connections to. So in the narratives of migration, the border, and this geopolitical action, I want to make sure that we're having a dialogue that comprehensively recognizes that this is happening, this is what is happening to our planet. So we need to be able to name the land that people are actually being forced to abandon. And we need to be able to name the forest and the gulfs that have been destroyed by these extractive U.S. and Canadian corporations. And I also feel like we need to be able to contextualize migration in terms of land-based issues in Central America and beyond, and they're facing this political instability and resource extraction due to U.S. policy. So if you could just rewind us for a little bit. So 
you know, some of us who are listening are probably starting with the idea of the wall mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit of rewind. Yeah. They're starting with the idea of the border. But I want to rewind further and I want you to take us to this place where we're understanding why would people decide to leave in the first place? What is happening to their land base that is forcing this destabilization in their homeland? Yeah. And the story in Resilience of the Roots really kind of emphasizes some of the issues that these communities, you know, not just in the Bahia de Jiquilisco, but all across Central America, is you have the intervention of the U.S. government that has backed uh, right-wing dictatorships, right-wing military. In El Salvador in particular, you have this war that happened in the 80s where we're known for having child soldiers. Entire generation of young boys who had to go out and fight amongst themselves. You had thousands of people killed. Some in cities held hostage and completely massacred. A complete massacre in several towns. You have this issue of what happens when a war is almost never concluded. So you have these young boys who have been trained in military who find themselves after the war with a lack of economy, nowhere to get an education, probably you know, about a decade of not being in school, since being maybe nine, 10. You have a lot of people who left. The people who could flee, who could afford to flee, they left. And maybe they'll return because they have land, property, and they have governmental friends who will vouch for them. And, and kind of stabilize them back where they are. But you have a lot of folks who, who left their towns. And one of the things that happens when you don't have people in their communities anymore is you have things like what happened in the Bahia de Jiquilisco where the mangroves weren't being protected and big agriculture just came in and kind of cut them down or there wasn't anyone to take care of them or watch out for them. And so you have just a lot of community members who, you know, lack a traditional economy, lack knowledge about the environmental damage that has been caused in the country during the war when no one was watching. Um, and then you have kind of a government that isn't ready to meet people where they're at. And so you have a lot of young men who, who did migrate to the U.S., a lot of them moved to Los Angeles and found themselves in gang culture. They found themselves being bullied, not wanted in this country, and so they decided to do what was most important for them, which is protect each other. And that's where gang culture is rooted. It really is about taking care of your community to make sure that you're safe. And this country has a really hard time acknowledging that there is a reason that communities of color and poor communities find themselves in that type of culture. So then you have the U.S. that says, you were here based on a promise that you would come and you'd work and you'd you know, prosper. Now that you're a gang member, we don't want you. And so you're sending back uh, young men who've been in this country, many of whom don't speak Spanish anymore, who don't know anything about El Salvador. They go to El Salvador and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, you sent us back to a place where there's no jobs. You sent us back to a place where we don't know the language, we don't know the culture. I mean, the gangs exploded. And so you have deep poverty, deep violence. Uh, the only way that these young men could make money was through extortion. And so you have now this new era of, we're out of a civil war, 
but are we really? If we're still not having an opportunity, we're not free of violence, it's almost like the deepest aftermath that could have happened was to continue the violence. And so when you have communities in rural areas who aren't able to feed themselves through their own means of agriculture or farming, they move to the city. They move to the city to try to make some money, find themselves now having to pay half to the local gang. And then they say, I moved here for a better life. I'm still not able to feed my family. What can I do? And the caravans really are a symptom and actually one of the most ingenious solutions to this problem because the way that folks traditionally migrate is with coyotes or with um, someone who kind of leads them on the path. They can charge upwards of, you know, a couple thousands of dollars, ten to $20,000 per person. And when that starts to happen, people are getting in debt. They're moving here and they're still not able to pay that off. They're asking their families for loans. So the caravan became a solution to say, we can't afford to do that, but if we all come together, we can look out for each other on the way here. We'll use that money to get started in our new life. We'll use that money to be able to have a place to stay when we get here. And so, you know, having to do that journey, which I think got a little sensationalized as, you know, it's just this group of people who are coming. You know, these folks walk thousands of miles. I would not do that unless I felt like I was going to die and this was the only thing that was going to cause me to survive. And I think that it's very unfortunate that this country has forgotten that. I mean, people continue to say that it's, you know, the, the values of humanity. When you see people literally walking, and telling you, I need this because if not, I'm not gonna make it, I'm not gonna live, my kids are not gonna make it. And we instead just say, we're gonna find every means possible to make it illegal to do what you're doing, which is to try to survive. I mean, that leaves us with a little bit of amnesia about what we've done and the reason that they're coming here. I do firmly believe that Folks are coming to the United States because they know about everything that's been done to their country. They know that their kids were trained by CIA military. They know about big agriculture and that a lot of those companies are from the U.S. And so it is a little bit of reparations that they're trying to seek out.
I had no idea about the young boys that were trained to be violent and the gangs. And that makes so much sense. And I had no idea that then they were shipped back, basically, to their country of origin with no cultural context, language. And then, yeah, what, what are they supposed to do there? And then just the injection of violence then into El Salvador, which is already struggling from all these other issues. I mean, it's disgusting. It's actually disgusting. And we can't think that this is an accident. We can't be so naive to think that the higher-ups in this country don't know what they're doing. We can't believe that they don't understand the ripple effect of what this would cause. So I'm so glad that you're telling us this because we actually, and for the people who are out there who want to care, who want to know about this, we need to know these things. Not just the headlines that we hear on the news or on Instagram or on Facebook, not just the little blips, but actually how are these countries being destabilized in all these different ways. And I even think about whether it's farm workers or um, that are brought in and then only to be detained, even though they're brought in, America brings them in and then treats them like criminals after. It's like disposable. It's just completely treating humans disposably. So, um, but to get back to the climate change talk as well, I know that Central America has been called ground zero for climate change in the Americas, not only in terms of the drought that you've been talking about, but also because it's in this ithymus that's heightening potential devastation from the rising sea levels, extreme storms, mudslides, and flooding like you had mentioned. And by 2080, climate could cause and force as many as 6.7 million people to migrate from Mexico to the U.S. And regardless of citizenship or nationality, we need to be rethinking about our borders in an age of the Anthropocene, knowing that there will be climate refugees, as people call them. So how, you know, how is this fight to abolish ICE and climate policy interconnected? And how is abolishing ICE not enough? How could future immigration and climate policy look like if we were actually to take into account what we know is coming? And it's not just that we know, they know. They know what's coming. They know what was coming long before we probably knew what was coming. So what could a solution actually look like when we're taking all these pieces into account, when we're really looking at the interconnectivity? Yeah, I think one of the most important things is we have to have a presidential administration that admits climate change is real <laughs> and that the answers have to come now. And I think one of the most important things to highlight is, you know, a country like the U.S. releases so many emissions compared to such a tiny percentage that's done by Central American countries, despite the fact that there's, you know, large agriculture or corporate agriculture. And they're the ones who get to see the firsthand effects. They've been seeing them for the past, I want to say probably over a decade. Hurricane Mitch hit in 1998, and it devastated the region. It was, you know, looking at pictures of Hurricane Mitch is very similar to what happened here, Hurricane Katrina. Like, these episodes are just more frequent, and they will continue to be more frequent, because that's part of what makes climate change real to us, is we see it happening. And when you see this mass exodus from Central America, and you ask folks, you know, why are you, why are you leaving your home? You're never going to hear the words, because of climate change. You're going to hear the words, I don't have anything to feed my kids, I'm hungry. My crops haven't been growing for the past, you know, three seasons. Or, you know, I have to face a lot of extortion. You'll hear, you know, a plethora of reasons relating to their interactions with other people. 
but the problem is that their interactions with the earth are what's causing that giant exodus from the beginning. Is you have a lot of people who are hungry, you have a lot of people who have found that their way of life or their way of living with the earth is being destroyed. And so around the programs that we do around the mangrove conservation and restoration is that mangroves serve as a buffer for things like you mentioned, like the mass floods, uh, mudslides. And so when that type of barrier is withered down, these communities have less resilience. And this community in particular, in the Bahia de Jijilisco, has been very successful in restoring their mangroves to create that buffer. And so one of the most, I think, difficult things when they're thinking about leaving is everyone wants a home worth staying for and this community knows that even more so it's worth fighting for and I think that one of the things that the government can do and even if the U.S. continues to kind of have this patriarchal I need to help that's what they need to be investing in is how are you making climate resilience? How are we taking things like uh, the Green New Deal that's becoming popular in the U.S.? And how do we implement that or provide the support or infrastructure for a country like El Salvador to do it? Because the people, they know. You ask, you know, well, what's going on with your farming? It's climate change. It's, you know, kind of our inability to survive on our own food that we've been doing for a really long time. And so for us, it really comes down to all the different layers of if the U.S. is going to continue to try to kind of be this intervener, we need the administration, the presidential administration, Congress, to acknowledge that climate change is real and it is going to come to our doorstep last. The U.S. will probably make it through a lot of these climate issues, or at the very least, we'll continue to ignore them like we have Puerto Rico and Katrina. But these countries like El Salvador, people are going to leave. There's going to be no one there to protect them. And the area where we work has the largest contiguous mangrove forest. Losing something like that off this planet could be completely devastating. We don't know what that would look like. So for us, we're really supporting kind of this new generation of climate protectors. That's what they're doing. They're resisting leaving. As for as long as they can. But we do take the stand that we understand why people leave and we fully support the decision to do so. And we are incredibly frustrated that the narrative around and the strategy around the Department of Homeland Security and ICE and Border Patrol has been to act as if there's an invasion happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about this uh, invasion, war on terror, a little bit more, but I, I think. What you're talking about with the United States intervening, we've been intervening for hundreds of years. I don't see us stopping that intervention, and perhaps that's not even at this point what's necessary to pull out completely of these countries that the U.S. government has come and destabilized. And maybe it's not just about like, okay, well, hands off, now deal with it but actually supporting the people on the ground of how to rebuild the ecosystems so that people can be taken care of. The land can be taken care of, people can be taken care of, so they don't need to flee. They don't need to be looking elsewhere for food. They can actually sustain themselves like they have for time immemorial in their lands and their territories. And, and I, you know, when you were talking about that, I'm like, wow, what would it look like to actually 
live in a country where the government was using economic power to actually allow people to survive and thrive in their own lands. Very different format, obviously, than what we have now. But because this country is built on slavery and built on cheap labor and built on this economic growth model, if that's going to continue, then, of course, this country is going to continue to destabilize other countries so that this country can continue making a profit and getting cheap goods. That whole shift needs to happen. And I think about this a lot, even when we go, oh, well, that's expensive. It's like, that's expensive? Like, think about everything it took to actually get that coconut oil on that organic co-op shelf. You know, it's worth way more than what we pay for it. But because of slavery and because of the destabilization of these other countries, we're able to have this subsidized cost of living. Yeah, just thinking about localization. organic farming, actually supporting people rather than just extracting from humans. Because it's just another form of natural resource extraction, extracting humans to do this this work. And I was um, reading that by 2050, anywhere from 25 million to 1 billion environmental migrants will either have to move within their country or across international borders due to climate change. But the other thing that's interesting is that environmental refugees are not even currently covered by the 1951 Geneva Convention relating to the status of refugees. So I think there's a really big issue we need to look at. I mean, up to a billion people are going to need to move by 2050. That's right around the corner. And there's not protections in place for these people. So, you know, I really wonder, (laughs) at this point, we're not equipped to act fast enough. We're, we're not equipped to even deal with this type of climate apartheid. And I know you kind of already spoke about this to your last answer, so I, I don't want to ask you again, but it's just something that I'm standing back going, holy, how are we equipped to do this? But um, to talk about this war on terror, this, this idea of how we look at immigration in this country, the mainstream media, I know in 2003, Pentagon commissioned a report titled an abrupt climate scenario and its implications for United States national security. And it reads, the United States and Australia are likely to build defensive fortresses around their countries because they have the resources and reserves to achieve self-sufficiency. Borders will be strengthened around the United States to hold back unwanted, starving immigrants from the Caribbean islands, Mexico, and South America, end quote. This is from a report, so they know this is happening. So when we think of climate change, perhaps we don't immediately envision a world that becomes highly militarized, but it's important to remember that Homeland Security is comprised of 22 federal agencies and was created in direct response to 9-11. So this country's disaster response operates within the framework of war on terror. You know, what do you imagine the U.S. government's response to climate crisis is going to look like in the near future? Yeah, and you, you brought up a really good point at the beginning, which is um, what's unfortunate about kind of immigration and migration policy right now in the U.S. is they are moving towards a, a frame of value added. So as you come as an individual or as a family unit, they want to analyze how much value you have to add to this country. And, and that's shown by, you know, the presidential administration's recent policies to try to get people to kind of buy their way in which is something that historically has been happening for a really long time. This country's immigration policies are based on wanting to get uh, you know, white Europeans 
allowed into this country and saying, you know, Italians weren't white enough. And so it's a history of trying to de-kind of racialize immigration policy, which is something that this country hasn't been able to do. It's unsuccessful. And as long as those who are seeking climate refuge continue to be black and brown, this country is going to continue to do a very poor uh, response. It's going to continue to find itself stumbling over which congressperson is going to you know, be the champion for it. Um, and we'll continue to see that we're going to be late. And when we're late, it becomes easy to use these excuses of, let's build this giant fortress. The reason that this presidential administration was really able to say, we're going to shut down the borders, asylum claims are all going to be dealt in Mexico, is because they have power over Mexico. They want to be able to say, you know, we see you guys as an ally. They want to keep a good relationship with them. And Mexico is eager to do that. Mexico has a lot to gain from being an ally with the U.S. in regards to their economy and their potential growth. And so you have countries who are then kind of pitting against each other, you know, kind of the little ants on the kind of farm here, trying to fight over themselves to try to be part of, not us, right? You're going to support us. And so you've talked about how highly militarized immigration is getting. It'll continue to get that way. I think we had like a couple thousand um, border patrol, we're up to kind of 25,000, and continue to hire. And the issue continues to be is, what type of people are we hiring? In order to have a system that we believe is egalitarian around maybe acknowledging that environmental refugees are gonna happen, if the policy's at the top and we say, you know, maybe the United Nations decides that they're going to add this addendum to asylum seekers, as you can seek asylum under climate change kind of related issues, you're going to have people who are implementing the policy based on prejudice. That's one of our biggest issues right now is we have a lot of people who look at the caravan and their first instinct is this is danger. And that's the historical context of this country is to see poor people and criminalize them because poor people don't have value added to this country. And it's very easy to say, we're going to keep them in Mexico because Mexico is up and ready to say yes. They have to. They're in a similar situation. And so we're going to continue to see highly militarized around immigration. I believe that it's, it's probably only going to get worse from here. We really are seeing folks who are at the border who have kind of shown up in this mass caravan as their last line of attempting to survive. And we really, you know, it seems like we're living in this post-apocalyptic situation already. Um, I can only imagine that this stalemate currently with the government around uh, funding for the border wall is just going to get even, you know, kind of like this bigger balloon. And for some people, it might be easier to say, and, and deter and say the wall is necessary because of this caravan. And some people will fall back to that and say, I agree, this is a crisis, this is about our safety. And I think that that narrative is tired. I think that that's part of the problem is we continue to, to think about our national security, about our safety. Everyone's an invader if they're coming and they're not doing things the right way.
And I think when it comes to environmental refugees, we're not going to see people do things the right way because it's out of desperation. And it is a last resort. Again, hearing this idea that it's about national security. So it's like, okay, you poor brown person, don't come to this country because we're afraid of you. Yet this country is the reason that they're coming here anyways. So it's this cycle. It's the cycle. We're creating it. This country is creating this issue to begin with. And where do we as a country expect people to go? You know, but, but that's the thing is there's not actual care. It, it doesn't matter because, again, people are disposable. And the militarization, just hearing the numbers, 25,000. And yeah, of course, and growing. And yeah, and, and they're probably indoctrinated with hate and indoctrinated with fear and indoctrinated about the enemy and the other. And I was, I think I was hearing about Trump talking to the president of Mexico about economic prosperity and infrastructure and development. I'm like, oh, here we go again. It's under the guise of helping Mexico now to do these mega resource extraction projects in some of their last areas with any ecological sanity. And here we go again. I mean, it's the same thing. Every time we see the United States going into a country saying that it's going to help them develop economic stability, and we know, we know it's probably going to be contracted to Americans for the jobs. We know it's probably not going to be the Mexican people that get the jobs, that get the, get the contracts, that are actually the people who have the wages, that are living wages. So again, it's like we need to look at these white horses, these um, savior acts that we think that the United States is somehow protecting the countries, but also protecting the United States and really read through the lines. It's, it's ugh, just unbelievable. So I want to ask one last question about El Salvador, and then I want to close with a question around your film. Back in 2017, El Salvador's legislature passed the world's first comprehensive ban on mining metal. And that's really exciting. That's, that's amazing. And I imagine that this was influenced by the reality that El Salvador is considered one of the most water-stressed nations in Central America with approximately 70 to 90% of its surface waters polluted by heavy metals, chemicals, and waste. You know, coupled with the land deforestation and the degradation and drought, El Salvador is expected to experience increased water stress. 
as of course is the rest of the world at this point. But in fact, by 2030, global water demand is expected to outstrip supply by 40%. So I'd like to talk about water management and land ownership. And what are the risks for nations if water distribution falls into private hands? Globally, what can we do to ensure democratization of land and making sure that water doesn't continue to get more and more privatized? This is a great question. Um, so yeah, this was a very historic win. Um, we're very fortunate that the folks that we work with in El Salvador were part of this fight um, and have been doing it for a really long time, unfortunately. You know, the, the, the systems and the powers that be in El Salvador consistently, you know, I think it is, it is that patriarchal kind of U.S. relationship that assume that business is more efficient. It can be in some ways. But essentially, that's the main argument behind privatization of water, is basically the government throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we can't manage it as good as we think a business could. And in the reversal, I would say, okay, maybe that's, that's an okay argument. Let's talk a little bit more about that. But in the affirmative, where the government is already managing that, it's no, it's figure out how to manage that resource. It's figure out how how did we get to 70 to 90% of groundwater is polluted? And you know, one of the things that our community members talk about is unaffordability. Sure, you can privatize water if you say you're gonna make it more efficient, but the government always falls short in those promises. I mean, it really mirrors what's happening in the US, actually right now in Northern California with PG&E. And we say that they're gonna be more efficient, we say that they're going to uh, stand up and, and do it right, but at the end of the day, the government's supposed to regulate it. And that's where it continues to, to be problematic, is the 70 to 90% at one point was 5%. One point was 10%, one point was 20, 30. And the government let it slide. It let these mining industries take advantage and ravage the land. And people are sick of it because they, they cannot afford to add another expense into their lives. And when there's such a small quantity of water that will be readily available as we kind of move forward, people who are wealthy in El Salvador will continue to find the resources that they need. But when we're thinking about some of these rural communities, it will become more and more difficult for them to access clean water. And those effects, again, directly to, to go back to some of these kind of environmental refugees, you need water and food. Those are the essentials for survival. And so for a lot of folks, this water stress, they're already feeling it. There's some communities like in where we work in the Bahia de Jiquilisco where women still have to walk a significant amount of ways to get some water and bring it to their home. And if it's not you know, the, the mother in the household, it's the daughter. And so that time spent around getting the water, bringing it to and from the community. It's time that is eliminated from them being in school. When it comes to sanitation, it's, it's a risk for young women as well. And so this fight against the privatization of water and against mining is about so much deeper about what happens in the household and its ability to prosper, at least attempt to prosper. And so when you add these other layers of effects for folks, it really is about survival and about preserving one of the last things that they have 
that isn't being corporatized. And if they can avoid it for as long as they can, they will continue to do so. We could have a, an entire hour conversation just on one of these questions that we've been in conversation around, um, and especially water privatization. Huge, huge, huge issue. And like you said, there will be some people who can find the last resources. But even in the United States, the United States as a whole isn't going to be able, uh, not, it's not going to be for everybody. Of course, who, who's going to find the water here? Who's going to find the water in El Salvador? And see these um, repeats over and over and over again. So I really, I so appreciate your analysis and obviously the depth of your care, the depth of your commitment to these huge global issues. And I want to end this conversation, although I don't want to end it, but I want to close it on the note of your film. And here we're in Nevada City at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. And I know you've, you've already spoken about so much. And we may have been touching on some of the themes that you have covered in your film. But maybe something that we haven't spoken about thus far that you're representing here with the messaging. Absolutely. And uh, Resilience at the Roots, uh, directed by Jake Rentner and co-produced with us, uh, really shows the characters of this story. Water privatization, uh, fighting against mining, diversifying agriculture. There are people who fought for those things to happen. And Resilience at the Roots shows all of those community members who stood up, ran for office, decided to start organizations, decided to bother the government until they got funding, decided to protect endangered sea turtles when there was no funding to do so. All of these folks have put their lives, their souls, their families on the line to stand up against repression and the government taking advantage of them. And they have decided to build a community that's not only resilient, but capable of being innovative. And I think that, especially around the mangrove conservation and restoration program, these communities have been able to restore such a natural resource that other communities are looking to them, like Puerto Rico, some communities in Mexico, who want to know how they've been so successful. And so really, our leaders are, are at the heart of the work that we do, and all of this is possible because these folks have decided to invest in themselves, and they have a community who is willing to fight. Um, and I think that in the times that we're seeing right now, at least in our communities here in the US, it can be, feel so easy to throw our hands up in the air and say, it's all really too hard. But I think that when you see a film like this and you see a community stand up in this way, it's very invigorating and inspiring to think that there's so much that is in our hands to change. It doesn't matter if you're here in the US or in El Salvador, there's such an opportunity and a possibility to create impact. If you just find your voice, if you're not you know, the person who wants to be out in front speaking and being the leader, be the advocate. Give them what you want, the policies you want implemented. And so I'm truly inspired by the folks in this film, and I hope that everyone who catches it will feel the same way. Thank you for bringing up that, that uh, insecure voice that I'm sure comes up for a lot of people, probably many of the people who will be listening to this podcast. Is, it's too big. It's too hard. I don't know what to do. I don't have the skills. All the things that we tell ourselves to not 
get involved, to not get engaged. And then when you see stories about people who are up against all the odds, the you know, total David and Goliath stories, whether it's climate change, U.S. imperialism, colonization, failing crops, droughts, floods, all these things. And when you see those people on the front lines who have next to nothing and they're fighting, they're using everything, all of their vital energy, and they're making impact, they're making a difference, then for those of us who are in the United States and relatively comfortable or extremely comfortable, we can look to them as the leaders Absolutely. and say, okay, we have to slap ourselves in the faces, put some cold water on our, you know, wake ourselves up and say, this isn't okay. We can't fall into our own pity parties. That's right. And so I think stories like this are mandatory for those of us who are awake enough to know that we have to do something, but maybe are kind of stuck in that how, why, where, why. It's like find your passion, get involved, and look to the leaders that are on the front lines, on the ground, who are holding the solutions. And is there a way to see resilience at the roots online or in another festival coming up? You know, how can people learn more, find out more about this work for, for all the people who are going to be listening for the Wild podcast that aren't here in person? Yeah, uh, we're going to be screening it at the Bellingham Human Rights Film Festival in Washington. People can also send me an email, find me at uh, echoviva.org, and we'll bring the screening to you. We want people to have the discussion watch the video, be inspired, um, and also get a little bit of anger in their gut um, and try to do something about all of the issues that are happening. Um, I think that it's very important that we all try to get inspired and involved as much as possible, especially around the water rights. We have a presidential election happening in El Salvador in a couple of weeks, and so a lot of things could change. A lot of the progress that we've done could be halted or, or altered. So the work continues. And yeah, people can just go to our website, ecoviva.org and find more information about us and track us down and we'll bring the screening to you. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for those of you at the Heartwood Cafe in downtown Nevada City at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. This has been an incredible morning. So this has been so amazing to sit with you in person. Thank you so much for your time, your work, your commitment, your dedication. And it's been extremely inspiring. All right, Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Dirty Birds and Mira Ros. I'd like to thank our podcast production team, our co-producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our co-producer and writer, Francesca Glassbell, our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy, communications director, Aaron Wise, and our co-managing directors, Melanie Younger and Mara Joy. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do so on forthewild.world. And rate us on iTunes as it really helps spread the messages. Thanks. I've been too long away from this wild open sky On the concrete trails and wide Through the canyons dark and wide The sounds of people talking